0: He paid it all upon the cross No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss He took my sin and washed it away When I was immersed in that watery grave I heard that gospel call because He paid it all Hello, and welcome back to the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. Today I'm sharing the audio recording of a sermon I wrote several years ago and give from time to time. I think it's really important. It's called Oh How He Loved Him, and it is a discussion of the raising of Lazarus that we find in John chapter 11. I hope that you will find this material helpful and beneficial in your Christian walk and in your personal studies. God bless. Again, welcome all to our assembly this morning. We're very thankful for your presence. If you're a guest, you are an honored guest, and we're very thankful to have you with us especially. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up in the New Testament to John, the 11th chapter. We'll read one verse from this scene here. John chapter 11, there beginning in verse 36. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? This is in the middle of the scene of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, his good friend from the dead. And before he approaches the tomb, he meets with Mary, and he is caught up in great emotion. His heart is troubled, the Bible says. His soul is troubled, and he begins to weep. The shortest verse in all the Bible, there in verse 35, simply states that Jesus wept. The question we want to ask this morning is why is Jesus weeping? Why is his soul troubled? And how does this scene play in to some of the major themes in the Gospel of John? Before we do so we have an awesome privilege to go to our Heavenly Father to approach his throne and make our petitions known. What an awesome privilege it is to worship him together this day and to get to go to him in prayer. Let's pray together at this time. A few months back we talked about the prologue or the introduction to the Gospel of John and we're not going to talk about all that again, but I do want to make some points as it feeds into some of the main themes that go throughout the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to John, the first chapter. Beginning there in verse 14, the inspired writer wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said... He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John's wanting to remind people about the importance of the incarnation of Christ. How God came down and he took on flesh. How God... Walked among men, walked among the apostles and the disciples for a period of about three and a half years teaching them about who the Father was. Jesus came as the full manifestation of the Father and the reason he did that was to come and reveal the Father to the world. And so as you go throughout the Gospel of John, you need to keep in mind that all of the actions that Jesus is performing is to reveal who the Father is. A lot of times when we approach the Gospel of John and we talk about how this is the book that talks about the deity of Christ. It does talk about the deity of Christ, but that's not really the main point of the Gospel. The main point of the Gospel is, who is God? And we get to meet God the Father through God the Son. Everything that Jesus did in this life was to give credit, to give honor, to give glory to His Heavenly Father. And that's what we see taking place throughout the Gospel Now, in the middle of this section, it talks about John the Baptist. It's it's not coincidental that in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is just referred to as John. John himself never speaks of himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And since there's no other John except John the Baptist, he doesn't have to clarify John the Baptist. He just says John, the other John that we know about. He speaks of John right here in the middle. He says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying... This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John bore witness of Jesus in several ways. First of all, John bore witness by performing the mission or fulfilling the mission that God had given him of preparing the way for the Messiah. That was an important point, and that's noted in verses 19 through verse 23 of this first chapter. The second way that John uh, prepared the way for Christ or testified of Christ is found in chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, and again in verse 26 and 27, John came baptizing in the river Jordan so that Jesus might come out to him and be baptized by him so that through the baptism, Jesus could be introduced to the world. After Jesus is introduced by God to the world, John now has the unique privilege to, number three, begin proclaiming that Jesus has arrived. Jesus is on the scene. We see that happen in verse 29. Notice how John does this to his disciples. Chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lot of Bible scholars, they read that and they say, this is an instance where John is declaring more than what he knew. Maybe that's the case. Maybe John's just declaring more than what we recognize many times. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is going to become the sacrificial lamb. He is going to die in our stead. He is the Passover lamb. Everything in the Old Testament about sacrifices and lambs being offered, this is looking forward to Jesus, the lamb who was slain since the foundation of the world. And John wants to recognize, and he wants everybody to recognize, who Jesus the Son is. Now this verse, verse 29, is very important because it... it gives us one of the bookends to the Gospel of John. Notice, if you will, uh, ch- chapter 1, where we just were there in verse uh, 29, in relation to chapter 19 and verse 36. That's what the Bible says at the crucifixion of Christ in verse 36 of John chapter 19. For these things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. The gospel begins by introducing Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has died to take over the sins of the world. And in the very last scene where Jesus is dying, where he is the Lamb, it reminds us not a single one of his bones was broken. That's a reference again back to the Passover feast. Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. If you get nothing else out of the gospel of John, get this scene. Understand, this is what the book is about. It is to introduce and display to us the Lamb of God, the Lamb that belonged to God, the Lamb that God sent into the world to die for mankind as a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. I want to ask you this morning, do you recognize who Jesus is in the Lamb that was slain? If you've never obeyed the Gospel, you need to wake up and you need to pay attention to who Christ is. Christ is the Lamb The sacrifice of God. The perfect sin sacrifice. Everything in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered, it was in a small way to depict what Christ would do ultimately at Calvary. All of history was looking forward to the arrival of the Lamb of God. And praise be to God that a sacrifice was offered in our stead. One of the most famous passages in the world comes from John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus was the salvific expression of God. And he sent the lamb forth into the world, not primarily for judgment, but for salvation. Now, if we reject the sacrifice of God, what remains? Certain and sure and steadfast judgment. There is no sacrifice that you can offer for yourself to take away your own sins, for Christ had to be offered in your stead. How God... Could love us? How God could love me so much to send His Son in the world—I'll never understand fully. I can't comprehend how He could love us that way. Why He would send His Son to die in my stead? You realize this passage is teaching in John 1 twenty-nine: we were all on death row; judgment had been passed. We were guilty because of the sins that we've committed. A lot of times, when we commit sin or when we think about sin, we have a false worldly concept of sin. This isn't so bad. This sin wouldn't necessitate that I die. This this sin would not necessitate judgment of the awfulest sort. You know, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Yet the reason Christ died, the fact that Christ died, speaks to how horrid sin is and how holy and pure and righteous God is. And God found our sin terrible enough that he had to send his son to die on our behalf. This I do know, Jesus died in my stead. And without the death of the Lamb, I would have no hope. But now we have hope today because of the blood of the Lamb that was shed. That's one of the major themes that stretches throughout the Gospel of John. And what I want to do this morning, we're going to look at a few scenes briefly. We don't have time to discuss all of the details in these scenes. We're going to begin in chapter 9 and go through chapter 12. And we're going to see how Jesus makes people his own. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the whole world enough to send Jesus to die so that everyone can have equal opportunity to obey the gospel. That passage is also teaching that the only ones who will receive salvation are the ones who will receive the Son. And so in the first scene in chapter 9, we want to see how Jesus offers himself to the world and how an individual takes up the offer. In chapter 10, we want to see how, what Jesus is going to do on behalf of this one who has claimed Christ. In chapter 11, we'll see how Jesus begins to do what he had promised to do. And in chapter 12, we'll see how people recognize that Jesus' mission had begun. Sometimes we miss some of the importance of scenes that are in Scripture because we don't take a broad enough view of Scripture. And we isolate a verse or a scene or a story from its general context. I believe that's in part what happens in the scenes that we're going to look at.
1: Before we go there,
0: though, I want to notice a couple of verses with you. With great privilege comes great responsibility. That's a famous saying amongst us. I don't know whoever came up with that saying first, but I do know they ripped off Christ. Christ said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. To whom much has been committed. What's been committed to us? salvation, the shed blood of the Lamb. What great privilege that is. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. Notice this saying in John chapter 13. This is the chapter that will come after the scenes we're looking at this morning, but gives commentary on the ones that we're going to have seen, what has already passed. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus speaking said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now that's a great commandment, but the question is not, how is it great? The question is, how is it new? Notice Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. The question we might first start with is, if this is the new one, what was the old one? The old one was found over in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where the Bible says... You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The old law in the Old Testament was you had to love your neighbor, your fellow Israelite, just as yourself. That law was transferred over into the new law. That law is still binding, but it's not a new, it's not something that hasn't ever been required before. In in Luke chapter 10, the Bible says, he answered and said, What is written in the law and what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, Do this and you will live. A man came asking Jesus, What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, What's the scripture saying? and how do you understand it? He says, You have to love God with your all, and you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's true. That's the old commandment. What Jesus said... Do this and you shall live. So there's the old commandment. What is the new one? Notice again what Jesus said. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is. In the way that I have loved you, and the love that I am about to yet demonstrate to you, it takes on a new significance. Jesus repeats this in chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. In other words, this is the new commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Listen carefully. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus' love is new. It's extraordinary. And that not only does he love his neighbor as himself, he loves him more. He's willing to offer his own life for the sake of those who have sought him. God sent Jesus into the world because he loved the whole world. And anyone that will believe in him will follow after the Lamb of God. That's his beloved for whom he has died. That's a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. Now, with that background, that concept of loving one another... As God loved man. Let's look at some examples in John's gospel that show how God demonstrated his love for mankind and how he drew others unto himself. Look over at John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, we have what is called the fifth sign. There were seven specific miracles that Jesus performs in the gospel of John which were different from all of his other miracles. They were specifically called signs. It reminds you of the book of Exodus that we've been studying out of some. There were signs that were given. There were 12 signs on that occasion given. Here in the New Testament, there are seven. Seven's the number of completeness. And this is number five. This is an incredible sign that's about to take place. There is a man who the Bible says was born blind. This is an adult. He's grown up all of his life. And for his entire existence, he has been a blind man. Yet on this occasion, Christ comes to him and opens his eyes so that he can see. Now what a miracle that is. I want you to see some of the ironies that are in this story. The man born blind sees, but those who have been born with sight become blind. They refuse to witness the glory of God. Those who can see naturally that we're born that way, they speak to the man who was born blind, they say, give God glory for what's happened. He does give God glory, but they don't want to recognize the glory to which he points. The glory that is. I want you to think about this. On the very first day this man has ever seen, could you imagine that? Living all of your life, being 30, maybe 40 years old, you have never seen anything. And now God opens up your eyes, and you can see for the first time, and you get to witness some things, this would be the most exciting day of your life. This would be incredible. Yet what he sees is quite frightening. He sees his parents for the first time. Do you imagine seeing for the first time your mom and dad? You've been blind. You've had to learn how to uh, find things in your house in the dark. You have felt their faces before, but you have never seen their faces. You've heard their voices. They have helped you out all through your life. But on this day, you get to see them for the first time. And what do you see? You see parents that are not backing you and supporting you. You see parents that are ashamed of the awesome thing that has happened this day. Could you imagine having a kid that was born blind... Taking some time back in that day, I would assume, to recognize that your child cannot see. Helping him all throughout his childhood, his adolescent years, and into adulthood to get around to cope in society. And on the day that he is healed, the day that God answers your prayers, you refuse to give God glory. And praise him for the wonders that have occurred. Are you kidding me? How could that happen? His parents, the Bible says, are afraid because they feared those who ruled the synagogue lest they be cast out. They held in greater honor than God himself and their blind son who can now see. They worried more about what did their society think about them. And what would the effects be if I accept this miracle that has occurred to my son. But number two, on this day when he sees for the first time... He gets to see his religious leaders. These are people that he likely went to and and sought advice from in life. These are people to whom he prayed in the temple, who offered sacrifices on his behalf. Now he gets to see them and interact with them for the first time. And what's the reaction that they're giving? They're saying to him, Give God the glory. This man who healed you, we know is a sinner. Give God the glory. Where did it come from? How were you healed? Can you imagine this? You know what these people are asking him to do? The greatest thing that has ever happened in your life, now that you can see, you're going to have to say, this is not a blessing from God, it was a blessing from the devil, and I hate the fact that God opened my eyes. Cursed is the man who did this. Are you serious? This man is blown away by this. He starts off saying, I don't know who this man was, but he had to be a prophet sent from God. He's a special man. He could not be a sinner because no sinner gets to do this. Here are the religious leaders. The religious leaders couldn't do what this man has done. And it is not a bad thing. And this man's not about to apologize for the blessing that he has received. Nor curse God for having given it to him. He knows where it comes from. They ask him to give glory. They don't want him to give glory because he is giving glory to God. And declaring Jesus to be at least a prophet sent from God. On this occasion, he also gets to meet Jesus and see Jesus face to face. Not just to meet Jesus, to interact with God. To discover that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. What his parents had been afraid of has now happened. He was blessed in being given his sight, but now he has been cut off from society From his family, he is an outcast. He was an outcast before because he was weird, he was different, he couldn't see. Now he's cast out because he can see the glory of God. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe... And he worshipped him. He had suspicions about who Jesus was. But here Jesus, in no uncertain terms, clears the air and says, I am God, I am the Son of God. And the man falls down and worships him as God. Jesus accepts that worship because he is God. Here Christ is doing what the man's parents in society would not do for him. Jesus is welcoming him in. God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world and to call all sinners unto Himself. He is offering salvation to this man who has now been healed. And the man is accepting it and bows down and worships Christ. Now, what do we always say about miracles? With a miracle comes a what, Mike? With a mess, A message. Whenever you have a miracle, you are going to have a message. The reason Jesus performed this miracle was to preach the message of chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we have what is called the Good Shepherd Sermon. It's been a long time since I've taught on this passage. I was thinking about this. The second year that I lived here, we did a study through the Gospel of John, and I got to teach on that. That's been seven years ago. I'm sure nobody remembers that sermon. We need to go back and teach All the specific details of that sermon once again. I want to give you two things to take home and to consider. I want you to go home and I want you to study the sermon. And keep two points in mind and then I'll give you a third point and we'll develop that third point further. But The first point I want you to think about is the sermon Jesus is giving here. All of chapter 10. This was given as an indictment of the leadership of Israel. He's saying, I am the good shepherd, not like these false shepherds. The false shepherds should have been leading people to God. But in fact, they are shutting the doors to their sheepfold and casting out people who have witnessed God. And as he teaches this sermon, it is an indictment of the religious leaders of Israel. We know that furthermore because at the end of the story, they pick up stones and start wanting to stone him. They got the message, and because their hearts were so hard, they would not repent. This is an indictment sermon. But number two, this is also a sermon from the Old Testament that's being pulled over. Do you know that? Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 34. That's the original Good Shepherd sermon. And Ezekiel 34 is based off of Psalm 23. Now Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms in the world. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know that sermon. That becomes the basis of Ezekiel 34. And Ezekiel 34 becomes the basis of the good shepherd sermon here in John chapter 10. And Jesus takes the previous two sermons and expounds upon them and teaches more about who God is. The God that has come in the flesh to shepherd his people, Israel. So I want you to go back and I want you to restudy this passage in light of the indictment that it is and in light of the sermons, Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23 that have already been taught. Maybe we'll teach on that some in the future. But here's the third point I want you to get. And you can't miss this point. This is part of why Jesus has performed this miracle and it also prepares the way for the miracles that are going to be coming down the road. Notice what the Bible says, John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. He's claiming to be the one the prophets look forward to. He's claiming here to be God. And am known by my own. In other words, those who reject me, they don't know God. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father." There's two points you need to pick up in this sermon here that he's given. He's saying, number one, I'm doing this to reveal my Father to you. That's the theme of the Gospel of John. I am being a faithful witness to God the Father. But number two, I'm doing this because I am the resurrection and the life. I am about to lay down my life for the sheep. And not only will I lay it down, I will also raise it up. This is how Jesus' commandment, to love as he has loved, is a new commandment. He is predicting, he's getting towards the end of his ministry, and he's predicting now, I, the good shepherd, who are drawing men like this blind man unto myself, I am going to lay down my life and die on behalf of my sheep. That's how much I love them. And I will also raise myself up. We're not just talking about the death. We are also talking about the resurrection. Jesus clarifies something here. He says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus chose to die. He chose to die through the hands of wicked men. But the wicked men were not the ones who decide when Jesus died. Jesus laid his life down and nobody could take his life from him. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. This sermon has angered them to the point where, what? They want to put him to death. They don't get to. Why? Because he lays his life down for the sheep. His moment was not yet. This closing scene, the statement about these rulers... Brings to point two minds that you really have to pay attention to. Number one, the Jews are now at the breaking point. They've seen enough miracles, they've seen enough signs from God that they should have obeyed the gospel, but they refuse to. They're tipping over into the point where now they're being filled with rage and envy and they want to kill Christ. But at the same time, They're not going to succeed in doing their will. Jesus is going to be the one that lays his life down. Jesus here is anticipating his death. And he's classifying it as an act of love. The greatest act of love. The shepherd dying on behalf of his sheep. Now this gives us the background for chapter 11. Before we go into chapter 11 though... I want you to notice the last two verses of chapter 10, verse 41. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Jesus leaves this scene and goes far across the region of Jordan to the area where John the Baptist had begun his ministry, baptizing people. Now, John the Baptist didn't perform many signs. But the people who heard John were more than willing to listen and to obey him by being baptized in the Jordan River, as we see in the beginning of the Gospel stories. And Jesus goes back to them, and though they hadn't witnessed the signs that Jesus has already performed, like this fifth one, yet they believe. And it shows the, perp- the, the hardness of the people's hearts who are rejecting the signs. If those to whom no sign has been given receive Jesus, With gladness. With each consecutive sign that Jesus performs, he's bringing greater, greater glory to God, and things are also becoming more and more dangerous for him. Don't miss that scene. What we're about to see here in chapter 10 is the sixth sign. Jesus demonstrating that he is the resurrection and the life. He's already told people that he was. Now he's going to prove that. In raising Lazarus. This is the greatest of the signs. Except for the seventh. Which is his own death and resurrection. It's not coincidental. The sixth sign. Prepares us for the seventh sign. If healing a blind man. Makes people want to kill Christ. What is raising someone from the dead going to do? Notice what the Bible says. John chapter 11 and verse 4. Jesus has received word that Lazarus is sick. In other words, it's the sickness unto death. But Jesus says, verse 14, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Notice he says, the purpose of this sickness is to give God glory. So from the very outset, Jesus knows that he is about to perform another sign that will give God glory. Now, this is curious. He says it's not unto death. But then notice what it says again in verse 7. Let us go to Judea again. Notice the replies that they give. Rabbi, verse 8, Lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, we just got out of that region, Jesus. And they wanted to kill you if you forgot the last time you were over there. And now you want to go back? This is only about a week later. They're not cooled off yet. They recognize the danger of going back in and performing a greater sign. Notice verse 11. Jesus replies, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now wait a second. Didn't he just say in verse 4, the sleep is not unto death? But now he's saying he is asleep. They get confused and they say, well, if he's asleep, that's a good thing. This is kind of like going into a coma. A coma is a blessing to help people recover from their sickness. And Jesus has to get very explicit and say, No, he has died. Notice verse 12. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about the, taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So how could in verse 4, Jesus says that this is not unto death, and now he says he is dead. The point is, Jesus, in his foreknowledge, knew this was not the final death of Lazarus. He has died for a few days, it's like a long sleep, and he's going to wake back up. Now, Lazarus is going to die a final time sometime in the future. He's going to die like every other man has. But this is not that time. He says, I'm going there so I can wake him up. I'm going there to resurrect him. And I'm glad that we weren't there when he died so that you can have faith. So that God can be glorified in this moment. So before Jesus ever goes, we know that the purpose of this scene is to perform the sixth sign of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. In fact, it appears Jesus intentionally waited before he left so that Lazarus would have been dead for at least three days before the resurrection occurs. Notice the reaction of Thomas as he speaks to the other 12 in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. They got so angry at us over healing a blind man. Jesus is marching toward his death and resurrecting Lazarus. The disciples knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody knew it. The reason Jesus is going there is to begin the march toward the cross. Don't miss that. Now in chapter 11, verse 21, after Jesus arrives in Bethany, he meets with Martha, his good friend. Verse 21, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is come into the world. We have a peculiar thing happening here. There's always a message that accompanies the miracle, right? Here the message is given before the miracle is performed so that you can understand the miracle once it happens. When Jesus talks about being, I am the resurrection and the life, he's explaining why he is going to perform this miracle. Yes, there is going to be a resurrection on the last day, and the resurrection on the final day is going to be like the resurrection on this day. When God calls forth bodies from the grave. She knew about the last day resurrection. But she couldn't conceptualize what it was going to be like fully. So Jesus is going to paint a very clear picture. I want you to realize also. This is the same sermon that he's. This one he just gave. About being the resurrection life. It's the same thing that he taught in chapter 10 in the good shepherd passage. I have the power to lay down my life. And raise it up again. I am the resurrection and the life. Let me demonstrate this. Let me prove this to you. The purpose that Jesus came into the world. Was to offer the hope of life. The greatest enemy of mankind that has ever been is death. And Jesus came to slay death. To take away the captivity of the captor. And has set souls free with the hope of salvation and resurrection. As Jesus begins to approach Mary on his way to the tomb where Lazarus lay, he does so with the intention of giving God glory and pointing more people to God the Father. Now here's a question I want for you. This has always bothered me. If Jesus knows that he's about to resurrect Lazarus from the grave, why does he start crying? Have you ever thought about that? If we went to a funeral and we're gathered around the casket and we know that in ten minutes this body is going to get up and walk out of the casket, why would we be crying? We would probably be waiting in great anticipation. We would be excited about the moment that's coming. But Jesus is troubled and He's crying. Why is that? Notice verse 33. Therefore when He saw her, that is Mary weeping... And the Jews came with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. There's a deep struggle going on in the innermost part of Christ in this moment. This is a very great, great struggle that's occurring. In verse 35, the struggle has reached the point where Jesus begins to weep. It begins to flow outwardly because of the inner struggle. And then in verse 38, the Bible says, Then Jesus, again groaning in Himself, came to the tomb. The whole way that He is marching to the tomb, He is distraught. He is torn up on the inside. He is distressed and troubled, and He is weeping. Why? Why is He weeping? Ask, why is Mary and Martha weeping? They are weeping because they are separated from the One that they love. Jesus is weeping because by raising Lazarus, he is starting his own death process. And he too will soon be separated from those that he loves. This is a preview of Calvary. By raising Lazarus, the death of Christ was so sure that he is experiencing part of it in that very moment. And his soul is in anguish, and he is distraught. This same language is used chapter, uh, the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 27, where the Bible says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is again vexed. Why? Because his death is drawing near. His death for those whom he loves. And he is greatly perplexed and vexed. Thomas and the twelve knew that before Jesus goes to Bethany, this is going to cause his death. Jesus knew that too. And as he resurrects Lazarus from the grave, he has sealed his death. He has begun the process of marching to Calvary to die on behalf of his children. He is becoming the resurrection and the life in this moment. And it is a great burden to bear. People who witnessed Jesus on that day, they cried out and they said, See how he loved him. How little did they know about that verse, what they were saying. How great Jesus loved him. Yes. Jesus loved Lazarus tremendously. He loved him enough to die on the behalf of his friend. He has raised him up to prove that he is the resurrection and the life. So that he too can die on Calvary. Calvary. To raise himself and offer ransom for the world. John chapter 15, again verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. Now how can we be certain that this is why Jesus is troubled and moaning and crying? The next chapter tells us this. Mary... His beloved friend, she recognized, she learned what Jesus was going through. The next week, beginning the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, he traveled back to Bethany, and he stops and he spends the night in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In verse 12, the Bible says, I mean, chapter 12, verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the oil. As he's sitting around at the dinner table with his friends, Mary brings this very, very expensive ointment and oil, and she breaks the alabaster box and pours the oil on the feet of Jesus, anointing the Savior, and begins to wipe it away with his hair, with her hair. Worthless Judas sits there and says, Ah, why did we waste this? Why would you do such a thing? This is so expensive. We could have sold this, and we could have given the money to the poor. He just wants the money in his own pocket. God points that out. Notice what Jesus' explanation is, though, of this scene. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Mary understood that Jesus is going to die for those whom he loves. She learned the lesson of the previous scene. And so before he dies, she has the great privilege of anointing the Savior for his death. I want to read one passage in closing this morning to kind of tie up what we've been saying out of John. John chapter 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, does that remind you of anything? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb in whom not a bone shall be broken in His body. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world of the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. To the very end. Jesus demonstrates the love of God and that the Lamb lays his life down for the sheep. The shepherd dying for those who are in his household. Oh, how he loved him. Oh, how he loves you and me. That the Lamb of God would come into the world and love us to the very end, even the death on the cross. If you're here this morning, As we stated earlier, if you've never obeyed the gospel, it's time to look up and see the Lamb. Recognize who Jesus is, the embodiment of God in the flesh, coming into the world to offer salvation, the perfect sacrifice, to step into your place so that you might be saved. Why not receive his invitation like the blind man? Why not become one of his own to follow after him faithfully? For he loved you, yes, unto the very end. If you've never done that, do so this morning. Maybe you've done that, but you haven't been living as you should. Remember who Christ is. With great privilege comes great responsibility. We are a very blessed people to be in the sheepfold of the good shepherd. May we never stray from his care, never walk away from him, but follow wherever he leads. There's one of you the class, come as we stand and sing
1: better is our sacrifice
0: he paid, the, he paid the price the price he paid it all upon the cross no longer bound by sin or with eternal loss he took my sin and washed it away I was immersed in that watery grave. I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.